This morning we're back into the Gospel of John, chapter 14. And as was mentioned already, we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit. I realized a number of years ago when I was in Bible school, at least the, the students that I attended classes with, there were two types of people that I went to Bible school with when it comes to the, the subject of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> First are those that I went to school with that were obsessed with him, meaning they would think about it all the time. He would drive down the road, you know, a certain guy in the dorm that had his eye on a girl and would drive down the road and see a billboard for a bank, so to say, and the lady on the billboard had a certain color eyes, and he'd see that and remind him of this girl that he was infatuated with. And then the number on the billboard, the last number was the same number that was the first number of her phone number. Or phone number. So for him, it was a sign. Her eyes, the number, it, it, it matched. God's telling him something, and he would drive over to her place and ask her out, and he would blame the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> it's a good way to get a restraining order, by the way. In Kevin DeYoung's book, one book about the, the will of God, he shares a story when he was in school at college, Bible college actually, and his roommate had a, had a special someone and uh, came back one night after spending the evening at dinner with her and he was down and just, just discouraged and he came back and he asked him what, what happened and he said, well, she told me, the Holy Spirit told her to, to break up. And he said, poor guy, you got dumped by the Holy Spirit. So the, that, that, and I, I'm making a generalization there, but that's those that I came in contact with. The, other, the others that I came in contact with were those that avoided the Holy Spirit, neglected them altogether. They, they relate to the Holy Spirit like I relate to my pituitary gland. I, I know it's there. I don't think about it. I don't want to learn anything about it. I just, I know it's there. And, and, and this type of person and people I went to school with would be blamed for a different type of trinity. You know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Bible. And they just remove the Holy Spirit. So that, that, that type, and for years, I kind of fell into that camp, a nervous, scared a little bit to talk about the Holy Spirit, unsure of who he is in his ministry to myself and to the world. Well, I asked the question, do you understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit? What do you know of him? Do you know anything about him? Well, the next few chapters in John's gospel are, some of the clearest teaching by Jesus and who the Holy Spirit is. John 14, John 15, and John 16, Jesus is gonna teach us of who the Holy Spirit is and his ministry in the lives of believers. John Calvin, writing about the gospel, says, while all their gospels show us the, Jesus' body, John's gospel shows us his soul, shows us God, who he is. And so we've seen that as we walk through John's gospel and this morning we come to John 14 and we're gonna look at verses 15 through 31. It's a little different of a sermon. I'm gonna ask some questions. We're not gonna walk through verse by verse as we normally do, but some more overarching questions of who the Holy Spirit is. So if you have your Bibles, open, turn, if you haven't already, John 14. We're gonna read verses 15 through the end of the chapter, verse 31. Jesus is speaking. He says in verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. 
Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered them, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and will, we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the rule of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you again for the opportunity that we have to come and gather together as the body of Christ here at Edgewood, brothers and sisters in the Lord, and we come before you, God, and we ask that you would teach us this morning. You would lead us and guide us to understand your word. And as we look into your word, answer the question of who the Holy Spirit is and what he does, may we understand, may we apply this to our life, may we be encouraged this morning, may we again remember and hold tight to your word as our hope and our strength. And Father, I do pray for those that are seated here this morning that do not have a relationship with you. And these words may be hard, and difficult to understand. We ask that God that you would bring understanding, that you would bring salvation to them. We ask, God, that you'd be glorified in this service. May the, my words reflect you and people could hear from you this morning. May they leave this place changed, different, closer, walking in fellowship with you. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So as I said this morning, I want to focus on two questions. Who is the Holy Spirit and what does the Holy Spirit do? And then last, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of tie that in with some of the benefits from the Holy Spirit. But first, who is the Holy Spirit? First, and you see this in the text, the Holy Spirit is a person. He's personal. He is the divine resident in the Christian's life. And did you notice in the passage, as I read, that Jesus mentions the Holy Spirit not as an it, but as a person. Sometimes in our life, though, in our world, actually, you might hear this in other churches. It's not mentioned this way. The Holy Spirit's mentioned as a force or a feeling or a movement. But right away in our passage this morning, Jesus says in verse 17, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. In Ephesians 4.30, the Holy Spirit is mentioned and is said to, to be grieved when we sin. Did you know that? Did you know the Holy Spirit grieves? Hebrews 10.29 says that we can outrage the Holy Spirit because of sin. Did you know that? In uh, Romans 15, it says that the Holy Spirit loves 
So even just in a few of those passages, he grieves and can be angered over sin and love. He's, he's not an impersonal force because an impersonal force can't do that. He's a person. He's personal. The second thing we see in this passage and throughout John's gospel is the Holy Spirit is God. Jesus says in verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Uh, another helper or a counselor or advocate or, or comforter. I'm not sure what your version has, and we'll get into that in a few moments. Jesus says that he will ask the Father for another. He is saying, I am an advocate, and here is another one. You have this one, me, and I'll ask God, the Father, to give you another one, the Holy Spirit. And, and we know throughout the, this gospel that Jesus is equating himself with God, right? Time and again, he was threatened. His life was threatened by the Jewish leaders because he continued to say, I am God. I am equal to God. And now he has the audacity to say, I'm, I'm sending someone who is just like me. The Holy Spirit is a person, and the Holy Spirit is God. So when we talk about this, we get into the discussion of the Trinity. It's a difficult doctrine, one that has been mistreated by cults and churches alike for hundreds of years. And I won't be able to cover every mention in Scripture about the Trinity concerning this doctrine, but I want to add a little thought about it already this morning. The Holy Spirit is the, the third person of the Trinity. Jesus says in the beginning of chapter 14 that he's going away, and then in verse 16 of the passage, he informs them again that the Holy Spirit is coming. So he says, I'm going away and the Holy Spirit is coming. Jesus is not saying, I'm not really going away. I'm coming to you in the form of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say that. Nor is he saying, I'm going away and therefore I'm not coming, but he's coming. No, he's, he's so one with the Holy Spirit so that when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, Jesus comes. They're so one in, in, in nature and every, and he's so identical to the Holy Spirit that he's away in heaven and the Holy Spirit's here and yet he's here. Easy, right? It's difficult. It's, it's, it's beautiful, actually. He, he, Jesus is saying that there are not three gods because they're two one. To be three, they're two one. But on the other hand, there's not a one person in three forms. It's not God wearing three different types of hats. They're two alike for that. It's one God in three persons, and it's deep. It's mysterious. It's, it's rich and it's credible. This is our God. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force, but he's a divine person who's right in the middle of your life. And why does that matter? It matters because the Bible talks about our lives a whole lot. Not just the beginning of our life or the end of our life, but everything in between. The Bible talks about how we should live, how we should think and act, and how we should talk. And in regards to this, the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit and how we should be filled with the Holy Spirit. Do we understand what that means? Do, could we give a good definition of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Now, I, I realize I'm going on a little tangent here from the text, but I believe it's important for us to consider what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is the experience incredible uh, power and divine joy. And I want that. I want you to want that and to have that too. First, if, if you think though, if we talk about how we get filled with the Holy Spirit. First, if you think the Holy Spirit is an impersonal force, then you go about being filled with the Holy Spirit as a force and you think much differently than if he's a person. 
He's personal. If you think the Holy Spirit is a force, you go about getting filled by, by meditation, maybe, by Eastern religions. If the Holy Spirit is a force, then, then they say, just empty your mind of all rational thought and words and, and, and meditate, and, and this force then will, will come upon you. But whenever you read in the Bible about meditating, and it comes up a lot in the Bible, it never speaks of a process of emptying your mind. It, it, it's never spoken of us sitting with our legs crossed and fingers out chanting, mmm. Never. When the Bible talks about meditating, it's not emptying your mind, it's filling your mind with the word of God. That's what it means to meditate. It's a completely different approach than our world would have. And, and if you think of the Holy Spirit as an it, you will approach this filling of the Holy Spirit as a mechanical approach. You know, that, that is a force so, or electrical charge of some, some way, so I need to go about these steps. If you think of them as a force, you're thinking, I, I have to push these certain buttons and pull this lever, and then the Holy Spirit will come upon me. I think maybe I have to pray this way, repeat, repeat certain words, or know special words, or, or repent of certain things. And so you have a, a mechanics to it all, thinking then if you do this, this, this force will come in and fill your life. And that's not what the Bible teaches us at all. It's not what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because first, the Holy Spirit is a person. So if he's a person, then to be filled with the Spirit is like being filled with a person. Consumed. Aware of a person. Let me illustrate that. A few years ago, I was at a conference in California. I believe it was the Shepherds Conference. And the conference had ended and I was flying home and I happened to be by myself. I don't remember how it worked out, but I was flying separately. And I remember getting through security and, and Katie was home with the, with the girls and so got through security, walking to my gate and the first natural thing I do is to get my phone to call Katie, let her know what's going on. And I get to my gate and I'm just about to sit down and as I'm sitting down calling Katie, I see Boomer Esiason walking in. Does anyone know who Boomer Esiason is? He used to quarterback for the Cincinnati Bengals for, in the NFL for years. And he's walking towards me. And I'm on the phone with Katie. And on the other side, Katie's like, hello. You called me, hello. You know, and I'm just kind of staring at him as he walks. And then I whisper to her, Katie, it's Boomer Esiason. Because he went around and sat right behind me. Could have leaned back and touched his head. And you know what she said to me? Who? You know, she wants to talk to me. I'm sure she knew. I don't know. But I was aware of him. So much aware of him in that moment. Like, I couldn't. I, she's on the phone, and she's like, you called me. Like, what do you want to say? I'm like, I, sorry. I just can't talk right now. <laughs> He's back there, fully aware of this, this celebrity. And it affected me. You know, so much I couldn't think at that moment. And to be filled by the Holy Spirit is to have your life transformed by a, a consciousness of the glorious person who lives permanently within the walls of your life. So much more than Boomer Siason. We have God who lives inside of us. And to be so aware of that, enamored, I once heard of a 
counseling session with a pastor and a man in his congregation. And the man in the church had been living a life of sin. And he's coming for counseling because he was caught cheating on his wife. And he, and he told the pastor that this was happening in his home. And before it would happen, he would run through his house and turn over every picture of his family face down or take it off the wall because he couldn't bear to see them. He knew what he was doing was, was wicked. And he said those pictures affected him. It changed his thought in that process. It messed with him, he said. Do we do that with the Holy Spirit? If you're, if you're a Christian this morning, do you realize and understand who's living inside of you? Are you affected by the presence of God in your life right now? You know, he's there. He goes everywhere you go. He knows every thought you have. He, he knows every motive of your heart. Does that change the way you live? Do you realize that God knows all? The Holy Spirit, a person, is right there. A person who grieves, who gets angered, who, who loves. He's right there. Does it affect you? I'm sure if you remember and realize it again, maybe there's things in your life you would stop doing because you know he's there. You would turn over the photos back the right way, knowing you want to live in a holy way. You know, think about that. The Holy Spirit is a person. He cares. He loves. He's, he's personally involved in all of your life. He, he isn't a force. He's not a, a bystander. He, he's a person. And he resides within the walls of every one of us as believers of our life. So that's who he is. Second, what does the Holy Spirit do? You know, there's a few things in our passage this morning that the Holy Spirit does. First, he is the spirit of truth, and he's our comforter, our advocate. First, the spirit of truth. What, is, what does this mean? Well, we know from other passages in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit is literally the author of the Bible. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone owns interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He is the author of truth and we're to be filled with this truth Ephesians 5.18 and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery but be filled with the spirit and then Paul goes on a list the, the traits of a spirit filled life there in that Ephesians 5 passage and then if you go to Colossians chapter 3 Paul is writing a similar thing and and if you read the Bible and he recognizes, Paul tends to do this a lot. He writes different letters to different churches but conveys the same teaching. He does it again in Colossians 3.16. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. It's the same as being filled with the Spirit. It's being filled with a person. And the word of Christ is the word of the Spirit. They're, they're one. Their message is the same. Their, their purpose is the same. And so if we're to be filled with the Spirit, we're to be filled with the Word of God. That's what he's saying in Colossians 3.16. We're to be filled with the Word of God, filled with God. To be filled with a person is to be dominated by a person, to, to hang on that person's every word. 
And for anyone here that's ever dated someone else, you understand what I mean by that, right? You're, you, you get to know someone and you're enamored with them, right? You, you're listening to every word. You have these conversations after conversations after conversations. You want to get to know them. And you're engaged with their thoughts and their words. You want to ask these questions, understand this. You're, you're enamored with this person. That's what he's saying. To be filled with the Spirit is filled with the truth, the Word of God. To be dominated and saturated with the Scripture. To let it dwell with you richly is not the same as just knowing information. It's so much more. You, you dwell with it. And so you take it in and it changes you. It affects your life. You know, it's one thing to look at the scripture and say, I see the facts and I'm going to just learn the facts. It's a whole other thing to be saturated by it. And so to be filled with the word is to be filled with the spirit. It's the same thing because he's the spirit of truth. But even beyond that, look at what he says there in verse 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then in verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is who loves me. Commandments is, is the word. You say you love God, then you will obey the word. You will obey the commandments. And here are the, some of the clearest words for us as believers. Love and obedience. We are called to love and obey. You know, we as, as parents, we talk about this a whole lot with our kids. Right? Right, kids? You hear it from mom and dad? Love and obey. You know, I'll speak to you just for a moment, kids. Your moms and dads were placed there by God. So you love and obey God by loving and obeying mom and dad. But as believers and as grown-ups, that's part of our responsibility too. We don't get to grow out of that and just stop. No, we love God and we obey his word. And so you know it's a contradiction for a person to say that they love God and yet live a lifestyle that is characterized by disobedience to him. It doesn't make sense. And so as believers, God gives himself as the spirit of truth to help bring about obedience in the life of a believer. And folks, the best example for this is right in our text, verse 31. Look down at it. It says, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. And Jesus speaking of this, saying, I, I do as has been instructed by me, by the Father, and I do this out of love. He is our example. So be like Jesus. Love and obey God. And we desire this for every believer. Paul, Paul desired this for the churches that he ministered to. He writes in Ephesians 3 about things similar. He says in Ephesians 3, 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And then get this, verse 19, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Paul's saying, I want you to know the love that surpasses knowledge. And dear church, I want you to know that. I want that for my own life. Meaning it's not just a, an intellectual pursuit, but a heart pursuit. It's, it's one thing to know scripture, and many people do. It's a whole other thing to have the Holy Spirit come and reveal Jesus to us 
inside of us and understanding this. It's one thing to, to know Christ dwells in your heart. It's a whole other thing to sense it, to experience it, right? I mean, let me illustrate. It's one thing to know that sugar is sweet. We can be taught that, but it's a whole other thing to experience sugar that's sweet. Maybe that's not enough for you. How about coffee, right? You can talk about coffee for a long time, but when you experience coffee, sorry, I like coffee. You just, you, you realize it then. It's not just knowledge then, it's affected you. This is the job of the Holy Spirit. He's the author of truth, not just, not just objective truth, but subjective truth. He makes it live and come alive inside of you. He makes it vivid and powerful. He's the, the spirit of truth and comes into our lives to change our hearts, to believe this truth all the more. But that's not all he does. Second, you see in our passage there, he's our counselor. And really, I believe this is the main point of the text. And you might have different, verse, or different uh, translations there for verse 16 of, of helper, the ESV has that, or counselor, or comforter. Maybe some have advocate. It's, it's really a hard word to translate from the Greek. It's a rich word. Some have comforter, and that seems sweet, but he's not a quilt coming to make things comfortable. Some have counselor. I don't understand what that means necessarily. Is it a camp counselor, a marriage counselor? I don't know. But the, I, the best translation from the Greek is parakletos or parakletes. And para means not to be in front or back, but to come alongside. And kaleo means to declare, to call, to argue, actually. And so the best way to translate that I believe is this. I'm going to send you another legal advocate. I'm going to send you a legal advocate. And the, the word conveys the idea that on one hand, this person is yours. This person stands in your position, represents you. This person is loyal to you to the end. And on the other hand, this person is one who argues. This is the one who debates. This is a person who, who makes a case. This person defends you from your enemies. There's... There's a soft side and there's a hard side to this. And so why would Jesus say the Holy Spirit is a legal advocate? Well, if you go back to Romans 8, 15, it says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption of sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And what he's saying there is that we have a tendency to fall back into fear, as Paul says. And so the Holy Spirit comes to argue and says, no, God loves you. You are his child. And then in verse 16 of that passage, it says the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And he, he bears witness with our spirit. He says, to, and to bear witness means that he is the star witness in the court. A person bringing legal testimony in court that basically settles the case. So what Paul is saying here is that when your heart is filled with doubts, the Holy Spirit comes in to testify that there shouldn't be any doubts. You are his and you're loved. And this is huge for us. There's another passage in 1 John 3.20 where John's writing and says, for whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. The Holy Spirit's job to argue. Our hearts, our hearts do not naturally like grace. I don't know if you know that about your heart. You don't, you don't like the idea of grace. You don't naturally like the gospel. 
the idea of being saved by grace. We don't naturally on our own gravitate to that. We, we naturally want to earn it. We want control, and so our hearts are constantly battling this war of performance. We're constantly battling the doubts and fears that God will, will eventually just have enough of us. He'll just grow tired of us. You know, we have that war of saying, I just, I'm not good enough. I, I can't kick this sin. I, he can't possibly love me through this. And then the Holy Spirit comes to argue his case to our hearts. And he takes the gospel and he pounds it into us to understand. And there's still so many in our world and in this place right now who, who, who dwell on the fact they feel they don't measure up. There may be you seated here, those you come in contact with, and their mind and heart are focused on their failures. I think we all deal with this in some ways. Go through a week where something happens, something triggers their memory. And suddenly an old flaw or a sin or a failure will come racing to our mind. And it's vivid, it's in high definition. It's not only we see it, here we feel it, then it affects us. You know, why is it over the years of ministry that I sit with people on the brink of death and I hear words of regret from their life? And they center on failure and flaws and things they, they knew they should have done better. Why is it that we all were wrestling with desperate, desperate feeling that we need to be perfect? And you talk to friends and they say, well, it's, it's unreasonable. You can't be perfect. It's unreasonable. And the struggle's there. Why do we struggle with the feeling we need to be perfect? Why do we struggle with the high-definition past? Why does it seem like we're continually being freshly accused, brought to trial? Because our conscience knows there's a courtroom. It knows there's a judgment seat. There's a court before which all of us will stand, and we stand accused. There's a justice with which we all have to deal. There's a standard that we know we've violated, and we know there needs to be perfection. There has to be perfection. That sense is so deep within our souls, it was put there by God. He demands perfection. He cannot be around anything other than perfection. And we know it. We know it's true. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is standing there as our advocate. Our legal advocate. There's Jesus. See, for years I thought Jesus as our advocate, our high priest, I thought of it poorly. I think I used to think that Jesus was like one of those high-priced lawyers that you'd see on TV that would be brought in for a guy who's guilty. Everyone knows he's guilty. And he'd get this high-powered lawyer to come in and, and, and his job, knowing that the guy's guilty, was to get him off. And he'd come in, try to wheel and deal and finagle and, and garner sympathy from the judge. He's trying, to, he's trying to get the guy off, knowing he's guilty. And so think that Jesus would go before God the Father and say, Father, 
Jeff really screwed up. You know that, though. You created him. You keep him alive every moment. He, he knows this, and he knows he should be living for you in every area of his life. He knows that you should come first. Look, look Jeff's had a bad week. Lots of stuff have happened. He hasn't slept well this week. Can you give him a break this week? He'll, he'll be better next week. You know, I thought maybe that he's up there trying to persuade God to give me another chance. And so the idea of Jesus as my advocate didn't bring any comfort to me. Do you know why? Because I knew I wasn't perfect. And I knew that I didn't have it in me to be perfect. You see, a good defense attorney, a legal advocate, doesn't just try to get sympathy. They know the law. And they prove the law. They make their case. And it's in light of the law. So as believers here this morning, Jesus is our advocate. And he approaches the Father with the law on his side. He knows the law. And he comes before the Father and says, here are my brothers and sisters. And I died for them. And look, Father, I, I know that they've lied. I, I know that they've been selfish. They've been bitter. They have failed you. They have done all of that. And I paid for it. Your law is a just law. And I paid the ransom for them. I don't ask for mercy for them, God. I ask for justice. He says, I died that your wrath would be satisfied. I paid the ransom. Justice has been served. You see, church, Jesus is our advocate. And he's the only one who can approach the Father and demand justice and knows that he'll be satisfied. And we know this because Jesus is the only one that's taken our place. And I gotta tell you, this is an airtight case. As our advocate, he's got all of his ducks lined up perfectly. He knows the law. And every single person seated here needs an advocate. But some of you don't have Jesus. He's not your advocate. And you try another advocate. Most of you try to be your own advocate. And you will fail. In every other religion, the justice of God is against you. And if you're not in Christ, you're trying desperately to heap works and works and works onto the side of the scale, and you will never have enough. Justice will come, and you will fall short. If you're not in Christ, you're before the judge pleading for mercy, and he will deal with justice, and he will deal decisively with your sin. Jesus is our advocate. And the Holy Spirit is our, our second advocate, as Jesus says here in the passage. So we not only have the Holy Spirit and the Son of God, well, there's some other benefits that we have here. Two things I want you to notice here as I end this morning, this passage. First, the Holy Spirit is a teacher. And the second thing is he's a divine homemaker. We'll look first, though, at verse 26. 
Jesus says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And this is primarily said to the disciples. They had, they had heard so much teaching from Jesus for the last three years, and now they had heard all of this, and it's being drawn out. And if you recognize, you remember what's happened prior, there's been a lot of trauma in their life. They're now realizing that Jesus is leaving. And, and their, their, their partner in ministry, Judas, has now betrayed him and left. And they don't even know the full content of what's going to happen there. And, and Peter has been said he's going to deny Jesus. So the trauma in their life is extreme. And he says this, this helper, the Holy Spirit, who's going to be sent from the Father, will come and he will teach you. And the disciples needed to be taught. And so do we. You know, Paul writes about this specifically for us in 1 Corinthians. That we need the Holy Spirit to help understand he says, but as is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Who knows us? Who's intimately acquainted with us? God, the Holy Spirit. He knows the thoughts of God. He, he's come into our life to dwell within us and to teach us and to preach to us. Jesus also says the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. And again, talking to the disciples. Been taught so much and it's going to come flashing back as they see Jesus on the cross and and the resurrection, they're going to remember again. We need this too. We so easily forget. <clears throat> we can be taught so well and yet forget to apply what we've been taught to our life. And so the Holy Spirit was there to bring the disciples along in ministry after Jesus leaves. Why is this important? Well, they were the, the founding members of the church. So vitally important that these men would, would get and understand all that they've been taught because they would start the church. And from last week, if you remember, they would spread out, right? You guys remember that analogy? They would go out. The church would grow. And this is what he's saying the Holy Spirit's job as he indwells them as they would understand the teaching, remember what he had said, and go out and spread the gospel. And the Holy Spirit's our teacher too, as First Corinthians says. The second thing I want you to notice is that the Holy Spirit is our homemaker. <clears throat> Jesus says in our passage in John, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and the Father will love him <clears throat> and he will come to him and make our home with him. The Holy Spirit is our divine homemaker. How does that term hit you? Homemaker. What do you think of? You think of your mom or your wife, right? Usually. You may think that it's not that important, but have you ever moved before? We've moved a lot in our life. Right, Katie? I can't, I can't remember now. We just, we number them. We don't remember now and how many times. And every time you move, you're not just moving boxes, you set up life. Every time we have moved, I think I can handle that. Like the moving part, I think, yeah, I'll do that. But then I think I can handle setting things up. And every time I'm wrong, not even close. 
and God gave me a wife, and she's a phenomenal homemaker. And in record time, every time we move, house is set up. You know what I mean by that, right? Where do glasses go in the kitchen? Don't ask a guy. The homemaker needs to know this. The homemaker is the one that sets it up. She manages things at home, and that's important, but she's the one that sets it up. He's the one that sets it up here, and this is what he's saying about the Holy Spirit, one that brings in the finishing touches, who makes things work. C.S. Lewis was quoted saying, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts. It does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers and making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little college cottage. But here he is building a palace, and he intends to come and live in it himself. This is the promise that was given to us, the Holy Spirit, the divine homemaker. Just like the homemaker on Sunday morning, racing home to get the house ready for guests, the Holy Spirit comes to get us ready, preparing us for the fellowship with the triune God. And he does this because the Father and Son may come and make their home in us, the believer. So what do we do with all this? You know, there's so much more to be said about the Holy Spirit. Lord willing, as we walk through the next two chapters of John's gospel, we'll see this. But from this morning, you know, I want you to remember, I want you to go away with this idea and understanding the Holy Spirit is our advocate and that Jesus is our first advocate. And again, to reiterate, Jesus stands before the Father, before the bar, before the court, and he's not up there pleading for mercy. It's not what a legal advocate does. A legal advocate makes a case, and he makes a case based upon the law. He's up there securing your status as not being condemned because of the law. He was before the Father saying, Father, you are just, and sin demands a payment. This brother or sister of mine has sinned. He's not loved God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind. He hasn't loved his neighbor as himself. He has sinned, and his sin must be paid for. And Father, here's the payment. My broken body, my my blood poured out. I have paid for it. And it would be unjust to get two payments for the same sin. I paid for it. Therefore, I'm not pleading for mercy. I'm, I'm demanding acquittal for my brother because I paid for his sin. He's pleading for justice. He desires to deal justly with every single human, and he will. And this is the watershed moment for every other religion. Every other religion that thinks you just stand on the scales and you see if things possibly could be weighed to your side. If you're not in Christ, that's exactly what you're doing. You're hoping. You're hoping that all of the good things might weigh into your advantage. But it won't. You need Jesus You need him as your legal advocate standing before the Father. And if you have Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit, he's your advocate down here, and he's applying the gospel to your hearts when you forget God's goodness.
when you forget his mercy, when you forget that we have a great high priest standing before the judge, he's reminding us and he's pounding on us to remember again. And he's there helping us to deal with those temptations, to deal with our pride, to deal with our fears, to deal with our, the accusations. And he's saying, look, this is what Jesus has done for you. This is what he did on your account. And the Holy Spirit is here pointing us to Jesus. You guys know what a floodlight is? Anyone have one of those at your house? What's the point of the floodlight? Is it we to walk out and say, well, look, there's a floodlight. Is that what we see? Well, the floodlight's job isn't to say, come look at me. The floodlight's to illuminate. It's a specific job. And this is the Holy Spirit. He's the floodlight pointing us away from himself to look at Jesus. He doesn't get the praise. The illuminated thing does. And the Holy Spirit points us to Jesus. It's his job. And he says, look at Jesus. Praise Jesus. Remember what Jesus did for you. So I pray this is an encouragement to you, your life. May we remember as we walk out of here, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we have God with us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the privilege that we have to have our own copy. Many of us have multiple copies. And we can freely open it up and read it at any time. God, we ask that as we spend this next week on earth, that you give us time on earth. May we use our time wisely. May we be saturated with your word. So consumed with you. Even in the midst of busyness and hecticness of life, of work, of school, of all the other things, God, may we not forget you. May we find joy again, remembering that you dwell within us. And God, as if, if there's sin in our life, I pray that we would repent of it. You would kill the sin, remove it from our life. May we live holy lives. God, I pray for those that are here this morning that have been here maybe for weeks and months that have never bowed the knee to you. They have never repented of their sins. They are not trusting in you. They continue to think their own way and they think that their own advocate, that they will stand before you on their own, that their, their good works or their, their, their good life will somehow garner interest from you. And God, your word is clear that it won't. I pray that they'll humble themselves this morning, that they'll recognize their need for a savior, that they'll repent of their sins, acknowledging before you who they are. And we know from your word that you're faithful and just to forgive them. And that you would save them. And the promise that you would then send yourself, the Holy Spirit, to dwell within them. And I thank you for the promises of your word. Thank you for your, your love and your, your watch care over us. Help us this week to go and serve you faithfully in all the tasks that we have.
And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.